Let's go to the videotape. <laughs> and let it roll. <laughs> Back to you, Wendy. Uh, <laughs> All right. Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist podcast reporting to you live from Brazil. Just kidding. We don't have that kind of chapo money. Not yet. Not yet. Today we have Hope and Laura. And we are continuing our global fascism series today and focusing on what's happening in Brazil right now. So Laura's here along with me to give you a little context. And then you'll hear my interview with left POC creator and all around incredible badass Wendy Muse. Whoa! Right? (laughs) So getting started... Uh, Brazil has been in the news a lot recently with the election of far-right candidate Jair Bolsonaro as president, technically president-elect. He takes office on January 1st. And I've heard Americans and American media outlets and leftists, too, drawing parallels between Bolsonaro and Trump. Uh, It just struck me that that is very lazy and very American-centric analysis. Mm -hmm. Brazil is its own country, Um, And I think by trying to understand what's happening there through this American lens, we're just reinforcing an American-centric point of view and almost in a way sort of acting like we're causing or contributing to what's happening in Brazil rather than recognizing that they may all be part of similar forces happening worldwide right now. Um, Absolutely. (laughs) That's kind of what um, prompted me to want to do uh, this episode at this point in our series on global fascism. Yeah, for sure. And I totally appreciate that because I think it's really easy for us to, because of like the history of colonialism and imperialism, um, jump to those conclusions. And it's really important to see each of these nations that we will be discussing and that we are discussing today as like their own entities as well. Um, I am, always curious how Trump and other right-wing dickwads also uplift and support fascism around the world though. Um, because I think it, it doesn't make a comment on what's happening there, but it does make a comment on what is occurring here. And we saw this, I believe most perniciously with the president of the Philippines where Trump was openly supporting the violent actions of Rodrigo Duterte. So I think in the U.S. we see politicians playing more of a subtle game behind closed doors. You know, not always, of course. You know, the Proud Boys had a huge showing this past weekend. Um, and and I just, I think it's really interesting to note the very differences where a lot of these subtle things and these um, corporate exchanges that happen behind closed doors that then influence our lack of democracy and how things are carried out in the United States is very different than how fascism is showing up in other countries. But also, you know, we do see these extra extra judicial groups like showing up and operating in a lot of the same ways that we have seen in other places as well. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, And I wanted to reiterate something here that I said in our first episode on fascism, and you'll probably keep hearing me say, which is that it's really important to distinguish between fascist ideology and fascist regimes, Mm. um, because both exist, um, to varying degrees. And when we're talking, especially globally, it's important to note where a country really has a fascist regime that's in power. Um, and then countries where we just see a rise in fascist ideology. I think it's important to continue to talk about those things differently. Absolutely. Um, and in Brazil's case, So just like very high level, because we'll get into this more later in the interview, um, but particularly there, Brazil has a history of military dictatorships. Um, Also, the urban poor are very well organized, and so are the landless peasants. 
Um, the labor movement and progressive social movements have historically been very strong in Brazil. Yeah, and I think in a related way, um, it's worth mentioning that Brazil's system of slavery, particularly around sugarcane in the Northeast and also with slavery in the South, lasted later than most systems of slavery in the world. And of course, there were systems of like, I don't know, neo-slavery, if that's a thing, that came afterwards, like tenantry farming and the like. Um, and after these forms of slavery were outlawed, many farm workers banded together to create farm worker cooperatives and unions to pre- protect themselves from farm bosses and to protect massive de- degradation of one of the world's largest swaths of forest. Um, so I do think like even though there's such a dark sorted history in terms of labor in Brazil in particular, it's, you know, it has one of the highest volume of um, slaves that were forced to work there um, in the in this entire hemisphere, but there is something that has like grown out of that that is this this huge labor movement. Right, absolutely true. And you know, Brazil is a huge country geographically. It's the size of the United States plus an extra Texas to give you some sense of scale. Our maps are fucked, so the yeah. U.S. always looks bigger, but. Brazil is huge geographically, was the first stop on the African diaspora. So that was actually the first place that the slaves, slave ships went was in Brazil. Um, The Portuguese were really horrendous um, slave owners and maintained a slave trade there well beyond other Latin American countries. So they would actually take indigenous people from other countries and move them into Brazil. So yeah, you make very good points there about part of what what makes Brazil unique and particularly different from the United States. Um, It's also a very resource rich country and, and historically has, has really been able to assert its independence in a way that differentiates it from other Latin American countries. Also, like I remember uh, reading that, that Brazil didn't want to have like Peace Corps volunteers there. They were pretty much like, no, we'll send you our Peace Corps volunteers. Like we don't (laughs) need, we don't need your help. They, that's kind of always been their their stance. So like all of those things are kind of contributing to positioning Brazil to be where it is today, I think. Yeah, and then I, also I just want- really quickly want to say like in case y- y'all aren't aware, it's, it is the largest economy in Latin America, um, which I do think matters in this context um, and is important for us to re- to recognize like if y'all are familiar with like the BRIC countries, which are like a step right below the most developed countries. Like how do we categorize this shit? It's kind of obnoxious, but, um, but the B in BRIC is standing for Brazil. And so I think it's important to recognize how their economic system, how progressed their economic system is and whatever way that we as a Western ideology can suggest that it's progressed. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. Um, And then politically there, so they have the Workers' Party, which has been able to deliver some social benefits, extend social programs, but it hasn't really been able to help with things like reducing crime. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of violent crime in Brazil. Um, And also things like addressing um, corrupt and violent policing. Um, And then, of course, there's just so much bribery and corruption. Um in Brazil's system of these large state-backed corporations. So, you know, the Workers' Party has really, I think a lot of particularly middle-class Brazilians feel like the Workers' Party has let them down and, and really not not been touching the things that are most important to them. Um, I remember actually anecdotally, so my dad lives in Brazil, and one a year, a couple of years ago, it was like around the holiday time, so like end of December and in the, the town, he, the city he lives in, the new mayor ha- t- takes office January 1st. And my dad was like, oh, you know, not to alarm you, but we should probably like take taxis and maybe not walk around as much at nighttime um, just till January 1st. And I was like, why is that? He's like, oh, well, the new mayor doesn't isn't in office yet. And because there's like nobody in charge right now, like none of the police are working, no like city officials are working. So there's just like a ton of crime for a couple of weeks. Casual. Yeah. 
And um, so when you think like Brazilians just, they were so used to that, they didn't even bat an eye that that's how it was. Um, but because especially violent crime had been getting worse, I think that also contributed to this want of like a, a, a strong seeming political leader who was tough on crime and the workers party was just not delivering on that. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, we're not pro police on season of the bitch. Um, and it's not like more police were going to be the answer to the problems of crime. Um, but I think you could argue that even like the social programs that the workers party was pushing weren't really even addressing the causes of crime in Brazil. And that wasn't really even their stated intention. So, Mm. so I think now is a good time to head into our interview with Wendy Muse. Um, she'll go into more detail about what's happening in Brazil, what her experience has been like, and probably most importantly, how we can support our Brazilian comrades. Yay. All right. So yeah, just to introduce myself and my work, um, my name is Wendy Muse. I'm a PhD candidate at NYU in history. Um, I have an MA in Latin American studies, and I've been focusing on Brazil for a very long time. I used to live there. Um, I've worked there, and I've been researching, I would say, like hardcore archival research for at least a good six, seven years, but I've been first time I went to Brazil was over a decade ago. Um, So it's been very much a part of my life just by virtue of my work and travel there. Um, And I would say that um, just my personal connection and also my research having to do with Brazil and Portuguese speaking African countries um, during the Cold War has meant constantly going back to Brazil and constantly having to stay abreast of what's going on politically there, just not only um, as it relates to my dissertation work and my research um, and my friends as well, but also my general personal safety. Um, and I laugh saying that, but it's, it's actually true um, because often when I'm there or when I'm in the field in general, people mistake me for a Brazilian. And even when I'm speaking, they usually assume that I'm Brazilian. And so um, that means that any random person who's committing an act of violence against black people, which is something that's been um, growing since Bolsonaro's rise to power, unfortunately, um, that means that I am also a target. And so when I, when I comment on these things, um, it's not, it's obviously for, um, for interest for my research and my friends and colleagues, but also just, uh, just as I would comment on what's going on in the United States as someone who lives in the United States. Um, so I'm experiencing kind of multiple sides of, unfortunately, of, of the growth of white supremacy, or I should say the revival. It never really went away, um, but a revival of it um, in Western countries. Mm-hmm. And definitely kind of an emboldening of acts of white supremacy, like a more broad acceptance, it seems like. Mm-hmm. Um, For sure. That was going to be one of the questions I have, which I think might make sense to ask you now. So does how does what's happening in Brazil change how you feel about going back? Do you have to take any different kind of precautions or like change your plans at all? Yeah, so that's a really good question. I So I've been gone from the U.S. for about four or five months. I'm doing like a big long stint of field research for six months. Um, and I started in Brazil, actually, so I, I went back to Brazil um, in June, July, August, um, and I was planning on going back at the end of the six months in December just to do some last-minute wrap-up sort of work follow-ups with people, et cetera, and then go back to the U.S. Um, I am still slated to do that, and part of the reason why I decided not to, like, change my flight or do anything like that for the time being is because I said to myself, ultimately, I'm going back to the U.S. And there have been multiple cases in just the past few weeks alone of white supremacist violence um, and mass murder um, of people of color, people who are Jewish, people who are of marginalized groups. And so I said to myself, you know, if I can survive the U.S., then I can survive two weeks going back to Brazil. Um, And I think that it's just it just sort of comes with the territory. So and and I also said to myself, you know, there are people who have been dealing with racialized uh, and socioeconomic violence in Brazil for far longer than I've even had to think about it. And so I, I said to myself, it's, it's nothing compared to what people there have already had to deal with. So I can, I can handle two weeks and hope for the best. So. Yeah. Just probably have some extra anxiety or maybe be a little more vigilant, I would imagine. Oh, sure. And I would say too, just because my work has to do with leftist movements um, and I've had to, 
I interview people who were leftists, people who survived the dictatorship and, and other forms of um, Cold War era surveillance and the like. And so to have a president-elect who's been openly threatening to murder leftists, um, that puts people that I interview at risk. Um, so I have to be extra precautious in that sense as well. It puts me at risk. It puts um, even the people who guard the archival information and libraries and all of these things at risk. Um, and I would say the other thing, too, just to add to that, is that, um, you know, his, in terms of, in terms of precaution, again, I'm a black person, right? Um, and there have been people thus far, the, there were four people murdered to, to date. There may be more that I haven't seen. Um, but two of them were people of African descent. Um, two of them were trans women. One of the trans women was also a visible of African descent. And so just thinking to myself, like, okay, they're, they're murdering black people. They're murdering people of color. They're murdering leftists. Um, they're murdering trans women. And so I think that there's a degree to which, um, someone like me as a black woman, even though I'm foreign, I go into that situation understanding that I'm just kind of a walking target. Um, and yeah, so, so, there's, but I don't think there's anything special that I can do to avoid it, um, because like in the U.S., there have been Bolsonaro supporters who have been videotaping themselves saying, like, we're going to kill all the black people, we're going to kill all the gay people, et cetera. So mm -hmm. these sorts of things are comparable in that sense. Right. It's, it's one of the I try to keep that in mind, um, even in the U.S., that while gun violence and these acts of extremism are a huge problem, statistically it's relatively unlikely for one person to be affected by them. So that I try to mm -hmm. use that like when I'm I'm organizing or doing especially like feminist events, I try to keep that in, in mind um, just to keep the relative personal threat in perspective so I can still do things without uh, <laughs> just like wanting to hide in my house all the time. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, <laughs> this is, I don't, this is kind of a related question, but our, how are the different regions of Brazil like being affected by this? Is it more concentrated in urban areas or like a region like Bahia that's more Afro-Brazilian? Is it more disproportionately affected kind of by by these like threats of, of violence? Mm -hmm. That's an excellent question, too. Um, so just to kind of give a quick breakdown of the vote by region, because this will correlate to my answer that I'm about to give about regional um, safety. In In terms of the vote itself, Predominantly, I would say the predominant vote for Bolsonaro in terms of region uh, was basically everywhere except for the Northeast. Um, and so the Northeast is sort of a PT or Workers' Party stronghold, and it's predominantly Afro-Brazilian. It's predominantly poor. And that was pretty much the, the, the section of the, or the segment of the population that went overwhelmingly for Bolsonaro. So the poorest, the least educated, the blackest. Um, and those who are most sort of socially isolated and those who live in the Northeast region. Those who live in the rest of the country, and in particular in the South, Southeast, um, and the Northwest, which is on the border of Venezuela, they went overwhelmingly, some, in some cases, more than 70% of the state would go for Bolsonaro. However, much like what we've seen in the U.S., too, where we kind of try to bifurcate the states and say, well, there's a lot of racial violence in the South, and so, I know, under the Mason-Dixon line, you don't know what's going to happen to you, as if there's no racialized violence in the Northeast or the North in the United States. There's a similar kind of rhetoric that's happening, or that's always happened, actually, in Brazil. Um, and with regard to racialized violence, You've seen some people who've said things like, oh, well, thank God for the Northeast, like things are going to be safer there for us leftists or for, for black people or whatever. But the reality is that they're the one, the first person who was murdered by a Bolsonaro supporter, and that supporter himself was also black, uh, was a black man named Moa Katengi in uh, the north of Brazil in Bahia. And then in the case of um, one trans woman who was murdered, she was murdered in Sao Paulo City, uh, which is like predominantly, you know, kind of it's predominantly white but it's also it tends to be fairly socially liberal um so it's sort of it's sort of like a new york of brazil in that sense um another person was murdered a trans woman of color was murdered in sergipe which is in the northeast um and then the fourth person was murdered who was murdered uh was a young black young man who was a union organizer who was on a march with his mother uh in favor of of a union and was murdered by uh, men who literally got out of his out of their car and shot him, um, and this was also in the Northeast. 
So basically what I'm trying to say in short is that there is no safe space uh, for people. And I think this, there's still, unfortunately, a kind of myth that some parts of Brazil may be safer for people of color, safer for trans people, safer for women, et cetera, than others. Um, but that's not the case, unfortunately, and never really has been. Mm-hmm. So it's, it may be kind of a false sense of um, safety that people have. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, I think I mentioned this to you before when we were talking, but my dad lives in Salvador in Bahia in the Northeast um, and has for like the last 15 years or so. So I've been down to visit. We probably go down like every other year or so. Um, mm-hmm. So I have like some knowledge of the region. And it's just, it's been hard just like talking to him about it. And, you know, people on the ground like are are trying to make sense of things um, and trying to get good information. So, Which is hard to do, yeah. uh, to be honest. Yep. Because and this, the unfortunate part is, even in the case of violence, um, the mainstream press in Brazil has not done the best in terms of covering what, what happened in the lead up to the, the second and final round. Because uh, for those who don't know, Brazil has uh, runoff voting. Um, so in the second round, uh, when Bolsonaro finally, like he literally became the president-elect, in the lead up to that, this is when all this violence was happening, one of which the final murder happened the night before. And so... You know, like, and and these are things that I learned about by way of activists who were tweeting about it or by way of leftist uh, alternative websites, but not, they weren't being reported in the mainstream press uh, very much at all. Yeah, I was a little surprised when I talked to my dad after the, like, I think it was right after that second round. um, And I had more information on some things than he did because he was mostly reading Brazilian news sources and was like, oh, I, Mm -hmm. I hadn't, hadn't heard about them taking down anti-fascist signs or, you know, raiding universities. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll send you some articles about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're just not getting that news there. Um, that's really scary to hear about. So um, to give this conversation some context, too, we're doing a whole series, kind of like a global fascism check-in in a way, because we just felt like there was so much happening concurrently. And, you know, mm-hmm. it's something we're certainly people are talking about in the United States and we're looking at Hungary and Brazil and Iraq and a lot of other countries dealing with, you know, fascist ideology and fascist governments. So a big question I had for you is how is like what's the what's happening with the government in Brazil? How is that different than what's happening in the, the U.S. with Trump? Yeah, that's also a good question. Um, and it's one that I'm often. I mean, I think one of the things that was problematic, (laughs) I hate that word, but what can I do? Uh, One of the things that was problematic about a lot of foreign coverage about what was going on in Brazil was that they'd often reduce the situation to Bolsonaro being the Brazilian Trump. I even heard language like Trump of the tropics, which just, I mean, kills any love that I have for alliteration. Um, But I, when I saw those kinds of comparisons, I said, well, first of all, they're doing the work of Bolsonaro for him. Um, he's someone who prides himself in being compared to Trump. A lot of his supporters, his supporters from very early on, uh, when Trump first became president, were kind of trying to make these connections between Trump and Bolsonaro. You would see signs, for example, at protests against PT, the Workers' Party, against Dilma, against Lula, where they had, uh, you know, things like Trump, come save us. Right. And so there was this already this pre-existing adoration of Trump. And so, first of all, just on its face to give comparison loosely without any real context between Bolsonaro and Trump is something that that helps his image um, among, among his followers and for himself, his own sort of ego. Um, but beyond that, I would say one of the major things that makes it that makes the two different um, of many things. The first one is the fact that Bolsonaro isn't as charismatic as Trump. And I know that sounds a bit weird as someone who's very anti-Trump, but to say that he's charismatic, but he does have, um, he loves the camera, right? And he loves, he loves the banter. He likes debating, even if he's completely wrong, but he enjoys the spotlight in the sense that he, I think, kind of gains a lot from being in these moments of adversarial contact with with his rivals, with his opponents. Whereas Bolsonaro hid from the camera the majority of this time. He was stabbed at one point during the election, meaning that he was only able to participate in two debates uh, of the general election. And then 
um, after he was healed and he was doing much better, he still refused to debate. And so that's the kind of weird anomaly about this election. There was no debate between the two primary presidential candidates at all. There was literally no debate between the two of them because uh, Bolsonaro refused to debate. Um, the second thing is, I guess, is now, yeah, the second thing that's different between the two of them is the fact that Bolsonaro is will be the president of Brazil. And in this case, Brazil is kind of becoming a client state of the United States. So the main reason of putting someone like Bolsonaro in power and the reason that you see groups like Wall Street Journal, The Economist, a lot of right-wing, right-leaning publications coming out in support of Bolsonaro is because they know that he's going to just sign off basically on all of the resources that come out of Brazil, going to the United States, going to Europe, and going to local oligarchs who are then going to go and spend their money in other parts of the world. Um, and he also plans to privatize everything. So his his main financial advisor sort of uh, loosely during the campaign and now who's almost certain to become uh, the Ministry of Finance uh, is a guy named Paulo Gages, who is neoliberal to the hilt. Um, and he wants to literally privatize everything and everything else send off to the rest of, of the world. Um, so I think in that sense, when you talk about who has the power here, right? Um, in the case of Trump, Trump at least gave some, some lip service to keeping things in the country. I think a lot of his language around nationalism is, I, I mean, a lot of it's BS. But on the other hand, I think there's a degree to which he would really like to keep certain jobs in the U.S. He, he would like to see sort of a more U.S. dominance and control over markets, whereas Bolsonaro is basically like, a lapdog uh, for the U.S. And so I think that, mm -hmm. that that sort of imperial relationship makes them very different as well. Um, and this is a key difference. And then the other thing I would say, too, that makes them um, very different is the fact that Bolsonaro himself was involved in the military dictatorship. He was a, a, a soldier during the military dictatorship that lasted for 21 years in Brazil, where people were tortured, disappeared. Um, many of the resources of the country were, were sent uh, to other countries. And there was a, a general reign of terror for 21 years. And in many ways that continued because a lot of the people who were at the helm during the dictatorship were never charged. They were never um, really forced to reckon with, with what they had done. They never, never had to kind of um, come to terms with it. And the people also, I think in some ways, they were given a moment of, of respite during PT because uh, Dilma and Lula themselves were um, leftist, you know, uh, subversive, if you would say, during the dictatorship. Um, and so to have them in power was somewhat of a nod to the work that had been done during that time to really, um, you know, to stand for democracy and to, to kind of push for a better Brazil. Um, and I think, you know, to have someone who was um, in the military during the dictatorship and who has himself praised um, torturers uh, and praised what happened during the dictatorship and basically he's denied that it's even a dictatorship. He says that it was a revolution for the good of the country. And so to have someone like that in power must be a kind of almost a sort of pushing people through a, a type of PTSD, right? People who were harmed during that time, um, people who grew up during that time who don't have positive memories of it. Um, to have someone like that in power, I think, uh, can create a sort of psychosis, a, a state, a mental state where you are are reliving a lot of traumas from the past. And so I think in that way, in a very key way, he's different from Trump uh, because Trump has no political experience. He was never in the military, whereas uh, Bolsonaro was a member of the military during the dictatorship, and he himself has been in, in political office for many decades, <laughs> didn't do anything, but he was in political power. He was in a, a place of, of um he was he was a excuse me he was a representative, so I think that that those differences make these comparisons really lazy because what it says is like whoever's making the comparison between Bolsonaro and Trump are not doing their homework and they're not interested in understanding the differences between the two countries, the experiences that the people will have under the two. Um, but I think what does draw them together is obviously their their vitriol and hatred towards people of color, their complete and utter disregard for any sort of programs to help the poor, mm -hmm. um, their complete and utter support of violence, whether it be abroad, because Bolsonaro, for example, wants to go to war with Venezuela, um, or internally, mm -hmm. um, in the case of both men. 
So I think in in those ways, on the surface, they do have a lot in common. Uh, but in terms of the damage that they can cause um, on a domestic front, and I, I have to be clear about that because obviously Trump causes plenty of damage abroad, right? right. I, I'm not trying to say that one is better than the other, um, but I'm saying the immediate danger that Bolsonaro and his his um, cabinet poses to the Brazilian public is very different um, in some ways than that of of Trump and what he can actually do um, in the U.S. and not against people from other countries, for example. Yeah, that's such an important distinction to make, and it was really very well stated on your part. I see that get lost all the time. Um, And particularly, I feel like, you know, Americans are extra lazy about global politics. So we're like, Mm -hmm. oh, we just draw these lazy parallels, um, not recognizing different power structures that exist, not looking at history. Um, Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah, we're awful about that. Um, One Another question I had about that, um, kind of the parallels or that might exist between the two countries. So a lot of times when there is this dramatic shift or things move in a more nationalistic or like fascistic direction, there's like a preceding either economic or kind of like social thing that happens, event that happens. Um, And I've heard from some, especially middle class Brazilians, that they had been feeling like there was more crime and more violent crime. The economy wasn't doing well for them. Um, and I think mm-hmm. you see that starting to happen in the U.S., where as we lose our middle class and we get a bigger disparity between classes in the U.S., instead of, mm-hmm. you know, looking at why that is, politicians really leverage divisions as a way of kind of distracting people and keeping them from having power. So I just wondered if you thought, any of that happened in Brazil kind of leading up to Bolsonaro at all or not really? It did and it didn't. Um, and the reason I say that is because, as you mentioned, you sort of um, alluded to, it depends on whom you ask, right? In the case of the middle class in Brazil, it's important to point out that when we say middle class and we're referring to Brazil, it's quite different from what we refer to as middle class in the U.S., which is kind of like in the U.S., this amorphous group of people who who don't identify as wealthy, but who aren't at the poverty line. So it's kind of just everybody in the U.S. identifies as middle class. Um, But in Brazil, the idea of middle class is basically what we would consider wealthy in the U.S., at least by comparison to the rest of the population. And so um, these people have a maid, usually, um, or some sort of domestic worker. They have a car. They have a house um, or or an apartment that they own. Um, They are almost always white um and there's also there's a tendency of this group to be at least have some college education um if not graduate degrees and so for and and again these are things that like sound normal for for people in the u.s but in brazil when you're looking at a population that's predominantly poor to have these things is it puts you in a position where you're you're basically considered wealthy and for sure considered socially wealthy there's a sense of social import that goes with this group um, but what's important to keep in mind is during PT, when they were in power, most of their rhetoric uh, and some of their practice, not always, it didn't always play out as planned, but in terms of rhetoric and, and loosely in terms of practice, one of the things that they definitely talked about was equalizing the society, right? Making Brazil a more equal place, making Brazil a place where black people, people of indigenous backgrounds, um, poor people had access to the same resources as other Brazilians who were of upper and uh, middle class standing. And so part of that meant affirmative action in colleges. Um, that meant several welfare welfare programs that enhanced, um, or excuse me, expanded access to housing, um, that ended uh, hunger in Brazil, um, that helped kind of give rights, for example, to people who were in cases where they were domestic workers, people that were working in construction, et cetera. There were all these programs that were put in place by PT thanks to the work primarily of um, activists on the ground pushing for this, that made people who were considered working class or lower class at least have some semblance of rights. And they were considered citizens at that point, right? I mean, I mean this in a very literal way in the sense that, of course, people had, um, you know, citizenship on paper, but people were working very informally most of the time. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the work that PT did was to make sure that most people in Brazil, even if they were poor, even if they were marginalized in some way, were included. They were considered part of the citizenry on paper and in practice. 
This, however, um, did not make people who were of middle class backgrounds happy. It certainly didn't make the upper class happy. Even though these people were benefiting from having poor people and working class people getting more um, rights, recognition, and money, because that meant that they would go buy things, right? This is one of the things that PT was actually criticized for by the left because a lot of the initiatives to integrate the poor and working class was built around a kind of neoliberal model, right? Um, cash transfers and things like that. So what you would see is that even though the middle and upper classes were benefiting from having people like Lula and Dilma in office, a lot of the complaints were um, kind of a thinly veiled version of class and, and racial hatred um, and resentment in large part because people were saying, well, I mean, no one, no one was coming right out and saying this. But a lot of the anger and a lot of the, even when they would interview people, for example, on the street during these protests against PT that were largely led initially by um, the upper and middle classes, they would say things like, we don't want our tax money going to all those poor people in the Northeast who are going to just drink it away and have a bunch of babies. It was very much a rehashing of what we saw in the 80s in the United States and even during the Clinton era, this idea of the welfare queen of the no good poor person who doesn't want to work. And so that kind of resentment very much fueled um, the complaints that people had. And I think the, the angst that some middle and upper class people felt in Brazil. And that was also what you constantly saw nonstop in the press. So, it, you know, I think sometimes when we start to talk about like, uh, oh, but some poor people voted for Bolsonaro or some black people voted for Bolsonaro. What we have to think about, too, is like, what is what is the point of influence? Where are they getting this news? Right. Are they are they seeing information about the economy from a left-leaning reading of this, or are they seeing it from predominantly um, upper-class oligarchic sources? Mm-hmm. Um, are they seeing it from, from WhatsApp ads that are, that are paid for by <laughs> wealthy business executives, right, uh, which is a, another controversy during the campaign? So I think that, that sometimes, um, you know, we can, we can definitely say that, oh, yeah, there was an economic crisis. But there was an economic crisis around the world. It's just that Brazil's happened a bit later um, because thanks to the work of, of PT during the time of the economic crisis, their economy was actually doing fine in 2008. In fact, you could say, argue that there was a sort of boom in 2008 and 2009 when the rest of the country was, or the rest of the, the world actually was kind of crumbling. Brazil was doing okay. Brazil was making uh, connections with other uh, second, we would say like second world developing countries. They were growing economies through alternative means and through independent diplomacy. And the U.S. and Europe was a mess. And then, you know, came it it came Latin America's turn. It came Brazil's turn. And I think that's when you started to see people really, um, as you said, instead of blaming the people at the top who could have done more. And by people at the top, I don't mean even the PT government. I mean wealthy business people um, and foreign investors. When they could have done more, instead of blaming them, they, the middle and upper classes started blaming the poor. They started blaming PT. They started blaming so many other people. And so I think that's where, um, you know, you started to see the early stages of what would later become uh, Bolsonaro's biggest voting bloc, which is middle and upper class white people. Um, and even, sorry, one more thing, even the thing about safety, um, because this is something that I had heard from friends of mine who were on the ground in Brazil during the voting during voting season, uh, during the election, and they were saying, you know, even some poor people are talking about um, safety. But when the numbers came out of who voted and how, it showed, and this is something that I have to give major credit to the people over at Brazil Wire for um, for pointing out. They noticed that people who voted for Bolsonaro in larger numbers did so in neighborhoods that were actually statistically much safer. In areas that were um, at greater risk for safety, they voted overwhelmingly for Adaji. So there's kind of who's the, the PT presidential candidate. So even that idea about safety was in large part a kind of a sort of, of heightened fear um, that I think was steeped in a lot of racial and class-based animus, to be honest. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I've I've heard a lot of that kind of rhetoric too. And I, from my conversations with people, it also seems like for a long time in Brazil, people, Brazilians who considered themselves like more moderate or maybe even left leaning, um, would instead of saying overtly racist things, would talk about Bayanos. So they make it like a, a regional mm-hmm. prejudice. 
and somehow mm-hmm. think that that excuses them from having a racial bias. So they make it almost like Absolutely. cultural. Like, and I think that's in part a, a peculiarity about Brazil and why this um, overt racism was so easy to get in on people because it started out as regional discrimination. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is true. And, you know, there's a, a really good book by Barbara Weinstein. I'm biased because she's my advisor, but she's mm-hmm. also a genius. Um, and she has a great book called Color of Modernity where she talks about a lot of these sort of re- the way regionalism is used um, as a surrogate of sorts to talk about uh, racial angst. Mm-hmm. And and social anxieties and things like that. They use regionalism and sometimes class as well to talk about. Uh, it's used as shorthand for race. Um, but one of the things to add to that as well is I think in this election in the lead up to it, what we saw is a heightened obsession with the idea of corruption, which is hilarious to me because Brazilian politics has always been rife with corruption. It's not anything new and certainly something that. People have seen from the earliest days of Brazilian governance uh, to the present, and yet the middle and upper classes became obsessed with corruption because they saw it as a kind of um, a misuse of their taxation and then the, the creation of that taxation and turning it into a handout for the poor. And right now what's hilarious is, and it's hilarious in a very sick and sad way, is that people who are obsessed with this idea of corruption and taking down PT because they're so corrupt, the man who was uh, the judge and prosecutor over so many of these cases involving uh, quote-unquote government corruption was just appointed as Bolsonaro's uh, AG, his attorney general. So I'm sitting here like, I mean, they didn't even waste any time. It was just a complete, uh, it was a complete case of bribery, basically. Mm -hmm. So this man, his name is Sergio Moro. Sergio Moro basically, um, you know, imprisoned Lula. He tried so many people for for cases of corruption that either didn't go to jail or never served any time that were on the right. Uh, but on the left, he was vicious um, in prison. The, the man who was getting the most votes in terms of the polling that was done right before the election. Um, so PT didn't have a candidate for a big chunk of time. Their candidate was in prison. Um, and then you see him and he, once the election's done, once Bolsonaro's in power, now he's going to join his cabinet. I mean, it's just absurd. Mm-hmm. And so it's ironic that if you're if you're really obsessed with, if you're really concerned, I should say, about corruption, right, then how on earth could you tolerate such a blatant case of corruption as the man who was trying all of these people supposedly for corruption then going to work for the candidate that just won against a party that was basically not allowed to run its primary candidate because he had imprisoned him. I mean, I don't know <laughs> where, how much more corrupt you can get. Um, so it's just, it's absurd. You know, it's completely absurd. Well, I think there too, we see something that happens time and time again um, with fascist and fascist leaning governments. And there is some parallel to Trump there where, you know, there's oh, like yeah. all the crooked Hillary and her emails and like, he's constantly pointing out corruption um, when, like, we know that he's corrupt and he's perpetuated corruption. Um, so that mm-hmm. that idea of, like, misdirecting and, and calling that against your opponents and using it as a way to seize more power, that is that recurs in history very often. Oh, yeah, for sure. For um, sure. So I wanted to ask, um, talking about PT, in your opinion, is there anything they could have done to, ha- like, avoid have avoided losing support? Uh, oh, that's a really, that's a rough question to answer. Um, I would say that, first of all, they had an uphill battle. I think that when you're dealing with um, an angry middle class and an angry upper class, and they're angry for reasons that don't really have much to do with you, and they're actually benefiting under your, your presidency um, and your governance, and yet, you know, there's no real way to appease them unless you were to turn into a, a the equivalent of a Brazilian Republican and stop helping the poor and stop doing anything. Um, so in that sense, I, I don't think there was much that could be done. And I would argue that, I mean, especially with regard to the press in Brazil, the press in Brazil has always been incredibly hard on the left, regardless of what time period we're looking at, because it's always been run by the same few people and the same few families um, for, for centuries at this point. Um, so it's, in some ways, I think it would be difficult for PT to have done anything because even if they had done more 
to, let's say, if they, I don't know, done something even more than they already did to appease the middle and upper classes, that would still be reported on in a way that was prejudicial to what they had done, right? Um, so I don't know if there's much that could have been done on that front. But what I think what could have been done to save the votes of people who were, say, working class, um, who were not quite middle class, but somewhere between the poverty line and middle class, because this surprisingly was a group that also went for Bolsonaro. Um, you saw people who would be considered, who were uh, getting, I think it was like two, if they got two or more times the minimum wage, they were voting for Bolsonaro. Whereas people who received one or less times the minimum wage voted for PT. I think one of the things that, that PT could have done to salvage the votes from that group is to focus more on union organizing. What happened um, once PT, because PT actually started as a, a union, basically. I mean, there were, were people who were union organizers. Uh, Lula was a, a union organizer, he was a union leader. And so if you're looking at a, a party that comes from unions, it was bizarre to see that once that party was in power, they did initially kind of I think they used unions in terms of getting votes, but for the most part, they kind of abandoned that base of, of union organizers. I think that could have been one way to potentially salvage the vote that went to Bolsonaro in, in shocking numbers for considering the class level. Um, I think another thing that could have, could have maybe helped on, along those same fronts is to, I mean, just be more boldly left. I, I know that sounds so cliche, mm -hmm. but sometimes, you know, they, they had to make a lot of compromises that I think made some people on the left and some people in, in certain, you know, lower economic echelons kind of feel alienated um, and feel left behind in some ways. So even though they too were, they were benefiting on paper, but I think the rhetoric surrounding what they were doing, there was some, sometimes these moments of, of two-facedness, duplicity, right? So you saw, for example, uh, Jilma Hussef, when she was in power, her VP, who then later stabbed her in the back and helped the coup that took her out of office, Michelle Temer, Temer was uh, from a right-wing party. And in Brazil, so just to explain that, the, the VP and the president don't have to be of the same party, but they make these alliances in order to get votes from, from, other, um, from other parties, voter, voting body. Um, and so in this case, you know, sometimes I think, looking back and of course hindsight is 2020 but the idea is like could she have won perhaps with a a vp candidate who was on the left and firmly so um i think these are questions again that look nicer in the present than they did back then you know people had to make a lot of hard choices um but i think that that is one thing that um you know some people would look at and point to and say this is when things started falling apart and this is when they lost some people who would have gone for PT in this election and instead either didn't vote or voted for Bolsonaro. And I think that that last thing I said, just to add uh, before I end this, this answer, that's another area that I think is important for us to talk about just in general, um, not just in Brazil, but in the U.S. as well. In Brazil, there's an option to leave your vote, your vote blank or to vote null uh, because voting is mandatory in Brazil. And in terms of the numbers um, around, there were, I think, around 8% that left their ballot null or blank. Um, and then there was another huge chunk of people who didn't vote at all. So there were around 30 million people who just didn't vote. Um, and that made a huge difference in this election. Mm -hmm. And the reasons they didn't vote, I will never know. And I'm not one of those people who likes to blame people who don't vote. But I think PT could have done more long before this election and very much, you know, even before, before Dilma was, ousted before she she underwent a coup, I think to kind of potentially salvage some of those votes, right? The people who didn't vote or the people who left their vote blank. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know what the answer would have been though. I, I mean, I'm just being completely honest, but I think some of the things that, that I mentioned earlier about really making sure that they're constantly, constantly inspiring their base mm -hmm. and going back and remembering who got them into power, who put them in office. Mm -hmm. The last thing I would say, too, is that one, uh, in a recent talk that I gave uh, after the coup and before the election, uh, one of the people on the panel with me, who herself is from Rio, she's a, she's, she was doing a project on education for a PhD at NYU, and she mentioned, you know, she said, it's crazy because you'll see 
you won't see the left in the favelas, but you'll see the church. And I think the evangelical church had a huge role in this election because they were, you know, they were going to the favelas. They've been in favelas for ages. Um, favelas are, are basically what we would call the ghetto in the U.S. or the slums. Um, and, you know, they were building a base there and they have incredibly conservative politics. And I think it's, it's a, it's not completely accurate, her statement, but I think it's one that gives me pause because it's something that we need to think about more mm-hmm. in general and that PT perhaps could have done more. Where were they in terms of everyday constant reminders of, uh, or not reminders, but I guess asking and listening to the people who had put them into office. I think that could have helped at least garner more votes of people who didn't vote um, who or, or who decided to stay home entirely um, on that day. Yeah, you make a you made many great points and answered what I think is a really complicated question. Um, but um, particularly that resonates with me, that idea that in terms of electoral politics, you know, we ignore non-voters at our peril. There's like too much focus mm-hmm. on stealing voters from the other side and not enough focus on actually speaking to people about what matters to them and getting those non-voters to feel like, like their vote matters, you know, and to really mm-hmm. make their vote mm-hmm. matter. Um, so it doesn't surprise me. And you make a great point about not working, you know, the, the PT not working more with the favelas and just not being, being more visibly supportive of people. Mm-hmm. Because I think, as I said, you know, they were, they were engaged in tons of legislation that helped the poor. There's no doubt about that. And they, they, in Lula in particular, was responsible for lifting millions of people out of poverty. I mean, this is a huge deal in a country where the grand majority of the population was impoverished. And there were, there were problems with hunger. There was starvation. You know, there was a complete lack of resources in rural communities. There were so many things that changed under PT. But as I said, I think there was a lack of engagement. So on the one hand, there's so much being done on paper, but there's no there's no reminder of that because every time you open the newspaper, every time you listen to the news on TV, on the radio, every time you go and you work for someone who's wealthy and doing okay and telling you that this government isn't any good, right? It's just this constant brainwashing of of whatever they're doing is not good enough for you and won't ever be good enough. And they're, they're just wasting money and time. And this is why we have the crisis and all that. Basically everything was thrown on, on PT's shoulders in terms of blame. And I think that that's why they needed to do a whole lot more uh, direct engagement, much as, as unions had done, just really going into these communities, going to people's workplaces, doing things that were connecting back to their roots. And I think that that would have, have maybe, I don't know for sure, but I think that would have at least helped, and I think you wouldn't have seen such a devastating loss. Um, and I don't think you would have would have seen as well such an easy um, fallback during the coup that happened in 2016, because that was another thing that I would argue also kind of um, put PT in in a rough position, because this election ultimately happened under a coup. If you, if you really you know want to be completely mm-hmm. frank about it, and so I think mobilizing around what happened during Dilma's time in office and then subsequent removal um, would have been a really important time to, to do this kind of engagement. And you didn't see it. There was a, there were a lot of people who I think just bought into the same rhetoric of, okay, PT is corrupt. And so we're just going to not do anything. And also the Olympics were happening. The world cup was happening. There was so much police violence. There was such uh, an alienation between the people and the government at that point that it may have been difficult, but it's something that I think should have been done and that I think could have maybe helped a little bit, but there's no, there's no guarantee of that. Yeah. Something that's been weird for me too, is when I've talked to other Americans and expressed like my distress with what was happening in Brazil and worry about things like, you know, what's going to happen environmentally and what does this mean for the people? Um, a lot of Americans are like, well, he got voted in, so that's the person they want to lead them. And I just think that's such an awful answer because we know that it's not really that simple. There's so there's such mm-hmm. a big machine um, and there's so many things wrong with, you know, elections and that it's just not really that simple. No, it never is. And I think one of the things that's always missing from this kind of conversation, unfortunately, uh, when you hear people say, well, that's who they voted for or whatever. Uh, when you're looking at 
places in Latin America, especially right now, um, we're seeing a revival of far right-wing governance in Latin America, and it's not by accident. I mean, these are things that involve imperialism, just point blank. Um, and it's just, it's strange that I see so many conversations where they, they blame PT or they talk about problems, but there's there's no engagement in terms of, like, foreign power or the economy or imperialism in general and how it had a hand in destabilizing so many Latin American governments. And Brazil, unfortunately, is one of those, one such government. Um, and as I said just a second ago, this, this election happened under a coup. There was a coup in 2016 um, that, that took Dilma out of office. And as I said, the person who was, who was behind so many of these, these, these cases is now the attorney general. So it's just like, okay, job well done. Get a pat on the back. And this man, Sergio Moro, had connections with the U.S. Um, there are so many instances where we see people who were senators and representatives in Brazil traveling to the U.S. Bolsonaro himself was in the U.S. Um, having closed-door meetings with think tanks. So, I mean, in the, before his election, so, like, <laughs> it's, it's always, I'm laughing because it's just right in our faces. Yep. Um, and it's something that people don't talk about, and that's really important um, with regard to what happened. And so that's why in some ways, I almost am reluctant to talk about what PT could have done because sometimes I don't know if they could have done anything to to kind of stave off uh, what would I, what I would argue was um, at least in some in many instances a case of imperialism and imperial control. So yeah. So because we don't like to leave anything on too depressing of a note, um, how can, <laughs> <laughs> we always try to give people little nuggets of hope at the end um, as you know, leftists around the world who are allies, how can we support the Brazilian resistance? Yeah. Um, so I think one of the first and most important ways, like, I mean, it's really important. It's just to be informed, first and foremost. I think there's, a, as you were mentioning earlier, there's kind of this gap, a very big knowledge gap between Americans, U.S. Americans, including those on the left, and what we know about the rest of the world. Um, and so I would say if you haven't been reading about Brazil already, please pick up a book, what, you know, read different sources, not just The Guardian and The New York Times, but read different and especially left-leaning sources on what's going on in Brazil. And not um, the Wall Street Journal. Not the, yeah, not the Wall Street Journal, uh, not the Times of London, uh, but some others are, are rather good. I would highly suggest, for example, Brazil Wire. Um, they do extensive reporting and they do so in English. And so um, it's a really good source for people who maybe don't speak Portuguese or who are less familiar with what's going on in Brazil and want to learn more. So I would highly recommend them. Um, but I would say, first of all, be informed. Second of all, inform other people, right? So other people who are asking questions who don't know where to go, you know, send them, send them to certain sites, send them to certain people on Twitter or friends of yours or whatever. Um, but make sure that you stay aware because one of the things that's that that makes these sorts of situations all the more disheartening for the people on the ground who are suffering the most and especially the most vulnerable populations is that it's as if they're screaming into the void right and and it's as if the rest of the world has sort of abandoned them and you see this a lot in cases of like honduras where you know we talked about them a bit during the 2016 election and then they had a bunch of things happen and no one really continued to talk about them and so I think it's important that we stay aware and that we keep others informed. The other thing, too, is that we should be willing to, within our capacity, offer material support to Brazilian activists who are working to support uh, people there who are going to be the first uh, kind of frontline targets of someone like Bolsonaro, which is in this case the poor, uh, especially the poor people of color, people who are indigenous, and people who live in the Amazon, um, you know, people who are LGBTQ, and I think that, that it's important that we also remember that, like, instead of just funneling money and saying, I support this group or I support that group, literally just give donations to the groups that are already on the ground doing the work. Um, I think that's really important because I think sometimes people get into this habit of, like, I'm going to start my own organization here in the U.S. and, like, try to do stuff, whereas there are already people doing that. And so just make sure that you're directly um, connecting with those groups. Many of them speak English and or um, have someone on staff who can speak English. Um, the only thing I would say is that sometimes there's a bit of a, there's some difficulty in terms of transferring, transferring money to Brazil. Um, so find someone who speaks Portuguese who can help you with that. I've always been one who can help people with that. 
Um, but I, there's also a program now called Zoom on PayPal. So it's X-O-O-M, and it allows you to donate money to Brazil and Brazilian organizations. Um, there are also some that have Patreon pages. So there are multiple ways that you can you can help donate to organizations and groups that are already doing work on the ground um, to help protect, to, I guess, to, to have some sense of um, harm reduction for what is already happening and most likely will get a lot more intense. Um, and the last thing I would say is um, just make sure that make sure that you're aware of what, as speaking to U.S.-based leftists, make sure that you're constantly aware of what our government is doing and be willing to fight that as well, because it's not disconnected, as I mentioned earlier, from what's happening all around the world. The growth of fascism is not anything new, and I wouldn't say that it's something that's only coming from the U.S. Like, I, I hate it when people are like, oh, people are now becoming fascist because of Trump. Like, there's always been fascism everywhere. Um, yeah, we but think I think we start things. We're always like, look what we start. We do. There's <laughs> even like arrogance in that and being like, look, we brought fascism back. <laughs> right. It's like, no, 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 no. Like these people were already, I mean, there was a lot of, of hard right stuff brewing in Brazil long before Trump even thought about running for office. So that's total garbage. Um, but I would say that we do need to be aware of what's happening in terms of foreign policy under a fascistic government like that of Trump. Um, and I think fighting that from within is also incredibly important. Um, so, I mean, there's some people uh, in Congress right now who are pushing for um, ending military aid to Brazil once Bolsonaro go, goes into power um, as, as president in January. I don't know if that's going to work because Trump obviously loves, he loves Bolsonaro. And uh, he also is really down with this idea of invading Venezuela. So I don't think that's, that's going to happen, but I think it's good to push for these types of initiatives. Um, and especially right now with the midterm elections coming up, there may be some space uh, to get people in office who would actually um, sign, sign or not sign, but uh, vote for that kind of legislation and hopefully pass it through. Um, so, yeah, those are my suggestions. Um, and for those of you who want organizations to donate for you know, feel free to get in contact with me and I can um, send you to other places where you can talk to activists or, or people on the ground or even journalists, uh, left-leaning and alternative journalists in Brazil are doing amazing work and they also need support. Um, so if you have any, if anyone has any questions about that, just feel free to shoot me a message. And My DMs are open. How would people find you <laughs> on, the, on the Twitter? Sure. So people can find me on the Twitter um, by just going to Muse Wendy, and that's Wendy with an I, not a Y. So it's M-U-S-E-W-E-N-D-I. Or they can also find me um, on the Left Pocket Project, and that's just at Left POC. This has been a really incredible conversation. I learned a lot. I think our listeners are going to learn a whole lot. And I just wanted to tell you again that we deeply appreciate all of the extra labor and energy that you're putting into this. It's really important work well i do what i can and i hope that what i'm doing is and in, will inspire other people to really reach out to those who are in brazil who are from brazil who are doing a whole lot more work and who 100 percent deserve our support um, as they fight what's going to be a very long fight ahead so that's our show for this week thanks again to wendy for being on the show yeah. um all the way from mozambique you are amazing and uh, probably most importantly, I can't you haven't mentioned this yet, Laura. Happy International Men's Day. Oh, my God. It's my favorite day of the year, honestly. <laughs> Did you do anything to celebrate today? I took a dookie on a man's chest. <laughs> well, I'm hoping it was consensual. I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> just, I just like, why is this even a pot? Like, what? is that what who fucking made this holiday who are you show yourselves i feel very like alienated from mainstream culture i was watching the ellen DeGeneres show today <laughs> and she did a segment on international men's day and then talked about how hot a couple of male celebrities were with their shirts off and i was just like Whoa. what is happening what is happening why is, why is this happening also like what yeah yeah no one fucking celebrate this shit like literally oh. 
<laughs> Too many feels for one for one closing segment. <laughs> Pretty much, ladies, thank a man in your life, especially if you know an international man. Oh my God. Just thank them for their brave service being men. <laughs> Um, anyways, um, you can follow us as always on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, listen, rate, review on iTunes, slide us some money on Patreon so we can actually go to Brazil and report from there sometime. Hell yeah. And, um, keep listening. We love you guys so much. I love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. the bitch.